danger is stealing in as relapse sums above the den. It's hard to know if this will Hello and welcome to episode 378 of the Thinking Poker Podcast from Baltimore, Maryland. I'm Andrew Brokus. And from Las Vegas, Nevada, I'm Carlos Welch. Uh, and we will be joined today by Ben Saxton, who I think was in uh, New Orleans when we talked to him. I mean, that's, that's usually where he is, but I don't remember if we confirmed where he was at the time. But anyway, we'll be talking to Ben Saxton. That's the important part. Um, so Ben is a, I guess not a professional poker player, but a, a serious poker player, someone who has in the past been a reporter for Poker News, uh, used to contribute a lot of articles to 2 Plus 2 magazine when that was a thing. Uh, ben has been a guest on this show a couple of times on episode 281 was his first appearance, uh, and then also episode 324, which was uh, almost exactly two years ago from when we recorded this interview, um, and it was interesting because that at that time, uh, I was talking to Ben about the start of the pandemic, and uh, so we kind of check in on, on that and how the uh, pandemic is uh, or is not still affecting the, the poker world, although given, given recent headlines, uh, it seems like it is still affecting the poker <laughs> world. Yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, I was uh, watching Twitter, and so... The WSOP has just started, uh, I guess, yesterday was day one. Um, and right as it was, and, and because it's being moved uh, to Bally's in Paris this year over on the Strip, um, there's been a little bit of, like, fanfare and, like, you know, it's new things that you wouldn't normally see at the beginning. Like, they did a press conference. Uh, I've, never, I've never seen a WSOP press conference before, uh, but they had... Um, uh, Lon McCarran and uh, Norman Chad do like a um, tour of the new facilities and make a video to kind of like show everybody what they can expect when they get to town. And then they also did a press conference with those two guys and um, um, a lot of the big wigs at WSOP, uh, Todd Stewart, Jack Elfel, and then uh, I forget the other guy's name, but he's like the president of uh, Bally's or something like that. And, you know, all the big media people in poker were kind of like covering this, obviously. And as we're rolling out the summer, Norman Chad, not, not Norman Chad, uh, Law McCarran, and also uh, uh, my buddy uh, Jesse Fullen of um, Poker News, um, both come down with um, COVID, and, and so uh, I don't even know what the word is for it, but it's like, like of course this would happen, like you know, as they're trying to like you know, roll this thing out, you know, we get this little like um, uh, monkey wrench thrown in, um, but. With those two having it, I'm pretty sure some other people who were involved in that press conference and that tour will probably get it eventually. Um, I looked today and it's and I saw that um, um, Jesse's back home now. He was in the hospital for um, a couple of days, so I'm uh, very happy to see that he's back home now. Yeah. And 
and and Lon is um, tweeting or at least retweeting. Um, um, I assume from home, so it seems like he's doing okay right now. But um, um, it, I can, I expect more um, like COVID announcements as this thing um, um, gets started. So. Yeah, it's going to be an interesting summer for sure. Yeah, so this uh, also answers for those who might be wondering um, why I at least am not in Las Vegas right now. Uh, you know, it's disappointing. I, I think it was, uh, well, I guess there was, there's really no option to, to play uh, the live WSOP in 20, um, 2020. <laughs> yeah, so in, in, in 2020 right there, I, I missed that one. And then 2021, there was sort of technically one, but I think a lot of people skipped that one. And uh, it does it does feel a lot weirder to, to not be at this one because I know that um, quite a few people are sort of, uh, you know, YOLOing it, I'm <laughs> going there and, yeah. and and playing, and even that sounds more like I I really don't mean to be judgmental about this. Like I, I don't have uh, I, I don't mean to claim that like you know what I've decided to do is necessarily right for for everyone, um, but I do think that a lot of people are not really so. Like it's one thing I think if you sort of assess the risk and say like okay it's worth it to me to play despite the risk, but um, I, I think a lot of people are really underestimating um, both the likelihood that uh, they will contract COVID while they're, while they're there and, and playing and also the, the potential consequences of that. Um, I put a, uh, a poll on Twitter, which actually was based on a conversation. It, it's weird because we you know we're recording this several weeks after we did this conversation with, with Ben. So I'm, I'm kind of providing some additional context for things that you'll hear us talk to Ben about um, during, during the interview. But I, I posed this hypothetical, which for me was, was kind of the breaking point on why I didn't go at least to, to play the main event, which you know I would be a lot more willing to. Um, that would, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to have a higher threshold for skipping the main event than I'm going to have for skipping like a random 1500 or something. But um, my concern was, you know, so this is like a multi-day event. Even if you started experiencing symptoms after day one, let alone if you started experiencing symptoms after, you know, day three or four or five, uh, the it just doesn't seem like you have a good option. I mean, you could, I mean, I think in, in some sense, like the responsible thing to do would be to say, well, I don't want to like just you know, walk into a room full of uh, people and uh, sit a couple feet away from them and, and breathe on them all day when I may have COVID. Uh, so it seemed like the responsible thing to do would be to, to test um, and you know confirm that you, that you don't have it. Uh, the problem is if you do have it, there's no compensation. Right? No one's like, oh, you know, that, that sucks. Thank you for doing the responsible thing. Here's the ICM value of your, of your chips. And I know there are, I mean, there are reasons why it's complicated to just like let people essentially, you know, cash out their ICM whenever they they you know can present a positive test but um i mean i think it's also unfortunate that essentially you're you know incentivizing or basically requiring i mean i think it would be crazy to i mean if, if you are playing this like i can understand why you're not like oh, i'm just going to walk away from two hundred thousand dollars in equity <laughs> because i may have covid like i i just think it's 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 just a bad situation to have people who are so incentivized to um you know knowing that, that they may have it or even that they do have it so i, I put out this poll um 29% of people, uh, maybe they weren't thinking in terms of the main event, I just said this for multi-day tournaments in general, 29% of people um, said that they would take a test and they would forfeit their stack if they were positive, uh, but 55% of people said that they wouldn't take a test at all, 
sixteen percent of people. Um, and I, this, I really have trouble wrapping my head around what this group is, is thinking. Sixteen um, percent are going to test and then play anyway if they're positive. I mean, I guess you finish out that tournament and then don't play another one. Maybe that's why the information is, is useful to have. Um, but I mean, I first off, I didn't want to put myself in the situation of, of having to make that that choice. And secondly, um, I don't like the way that I anticipate most other, you know, I, just, I, I guess I, I don't like the scenario that um, other people's incentives are going to feed into. Cause again, I'm not trying to, you know, judge people. Like I, I understand why you would make the decision to, to not forfeit your stack. I more just think it's like, it's, it's going to create a bad situation. Yeah. Yeah. I, I understand that as well. Um, and, and talking to you, like I, I was, so last year or, um, I guess it was. I guess we can say last year, even though it wasn't summer. Uh, last year's WSOB. Oh, that feels so good to be able to say it that way. Um, that was one where I could have played the main event and chose not to because I just didn't want to. Um, even though I had um, several seats, um, I wanted to it. Um, but this year I was actually going to play. And um, um, the conversation that you and I had about, you know, the possibility of getting COVID and um, having to make a decision whether or not the four for your stack has decreased the likelihood I play uh, substantially. Uh, I still might, but it's probably it's below 50 percent now. Um, and it's because of exactly what you said. If I play and I get COVID, I don't think that. I'm going to be able to forfeit that stack. It's just, like you said, it's too much EV. And the other thing that we talked about is like, you know, um, by this point, what are we, two years into this thing? Like, people pretty much know the risk. And they also um, have had, most people at the WSOP at least, have had an opportunity to get a vaccine. So I almost feel like, you know, that risk is baked in just like any other, the risk of like financial loss. Uh, so that kind of makes me a little bit uh, more willing for this tournament. But like you said, your your poll was probably like the results could be off a little bit because you didn't um, specify the main. If it was a smaller tournament, yeah, I could see myself um, forfeiting that stack. But yeah, it is a really big ask um, in the main event. So for that reason, um, I'm probably not going to play it this year. And that makes me sad. You know, I, I hate to be uh, raining on your parade and to be raining on the parades of uh, everyone else who's out there um, listening to, to this or, you know, people who have not yet uh, turned it off in a rage. <laughs> you know, it, it, it sucks to be the voice of... Uh, pessimism or or whatever but uh i just i feel compelled to well i mean a just to explain like i think many people would reasonably wonder like why am i not um out there so i mean a i feel compelled to explain that and b you know i guess i feel compelled to like call it as i as i see it and i suppose at this point a lot of people um you know are probably not in a position to you know, be like changing their plans entirely uh, based on on anything yeah. that I say. But I mean, I wouldn't. I guess you mentioned vaccination. You know, I do think um, this is a good time if, if you're eligible. I mean, a you know, get vaccinated. Um, B if you're eligible for a booster that you have not gotten yet. My understanding, um, you know, certainly I have only an amateur's. Uh, you know, I've been trying to follow the research on this fairly closely, but I am not like an epidemiologist or anything. Um, my understanding is that the immunity that's granted or not not immune 
immunity, but the uh, resistance that's granted by a booster is most potent in the weeks after you get it. So um, I think you know it, it does make sense strategically to you know if you're eligible for a, a, a booster, um, you know, third or fourth that you haven't gotten yet, uh, this would be a good time to get it if you are going to be playing WSOP events. Um, you this it's hard to imagine you're going to be in another scenario that would be where you would benefit more from that boosted immunity than uh, than being in those convention centers. Um, yeah. And, and a, a well-fitting mask, you know, an a, a N95 or a KN95 mask. Uh, cloth masks are, like, maybe better than nothing, but not a lot better. <laughs> like, really, the, the, the better masks are a lot better than, than cloth masks. So, you know, if, if you are still playing and are inclined to, to take the measures that you can... Um, I think you know that's that's uh, worth thinking about, and honestly, that's that's another one of the reasons why I'm not playing. I'm like, I understand they're very uncomfortable to wear for a long period of time, and um, it didn't feel good to me to play without one, um, especially with what the the community infection rates are right now. Um, but I also didn't really like the idea of wearing one all day, uh, and that's part of why I'm not there as well. Yeah, I um, well, I guess I was going to say I don't mind wearing them all day, but I guess I. Have I been in a situation where I had to do that? Um, I always wear mine when I go outside of my room or whenever I'm going to be around people, um, even just passing by. Um, But obviously that's not all day. Um, But uh, I generally don't mind wearing a mask. In fact, I enjoy wearing a mask. (laughs) Uh, Last year, uh, um, there were some events that where you didn't where you were not required to wear a mask and i did anyway and so that's when i would have worn them quote unquote all day um uh, yeah it didn't bother me so if you are one of those people who can tolerate the mask um you probably should and also um maybe not everybody knows this but at the beginning of this thing the n95 masks were kind of hard to come by but now, you know, the um, availability of those are such that, you know, anybody that wants one could probably get one, um, at least the KN95, KN95 mask. So, um, yeah, I would consider that as well if it's something that you haven't thought about. Yeah, and I'm saying this because I appreciate our listeners and I care about you all and I want you to be well. Yeah, and who knows, man, it's June. Um, by the time the main event rolls around uh, at the end of um, July, uh, maybe we'll, we'll get a chance to see what happens uh, because most of us aren't grinding a full schedule. So we'll have a few guinea pigs to look at uh, in a month. <laughs> yeah, so I'll probably make my decision based on what happens over uh, the next month. Uh, but, uh, yeah, the um, yeah, we'll, we'll see. Like I said, it's going to be an interesting summer. Actually, summer this year so far. <laughs> well, let me ask you on a happier note: Have you been to the um, to the facility? You know, have you seen the new uh, grounds? No, um, I don't leave this room <laughs> unless I have to. Uh, so, for those that don't know, I'm still at the Rio. Been here since the last <laughs> since the last WSOP. Um, I'll be here until this thing is a Hyatt or whatever the hell it's going to turn into. <laughs> um, but yeah, I haven't been over to Bally's yet, but um, the um, second week 
I think second or third week. I can't remember which. Uh, I'll have a room over at the ba- over at Bally's. So once I'm in the building, I'll probably like you know go peek my head in and see what it looks like. I mean, I watched the tour that uh, Lon and um, Norm did. Uh, seemed fine on video, but I'm still a little bit salty about it not being at the Rio anymore. So it didn't look good enough to me. Yeah, I know there's been a lot of um, talk about the, uh, the the rates for parking there, which is understandable. I mean, that, that was kind of a turnoff to me, but I do also, I mean, hopefully a lot fewer people will need to park, right? And the fact that it's on the Strip, um, I think there are better options for getting there without driving. So hopefully that'll um, mitigate that problem. Yeah, I died laughing when I saw those parking rates. Because I'm thinking, like, if, if this was Carlos from, like, five years ago, and I saw that my brain would just explode. <laughs> like, first of all, you forced me to be around all these strip people who I don't want to be around, and now I gotta like pay the part. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but now I don't have to because I got the diamond card. But um, yeah, it's like so far um, being on the strip for me is a negative. Um, so the Rio has like one up there. And then having to pay for parking is also a negative. So um, over two so far, Valleys. Yeah, I guess being on the strip, you do have a little more access. I mean, part of the problem with the Rio is like the food options right around there were so bad. And then to get anywhere else, um, Gold Coast being a notable exception, but uh, with, with absent the saving grace of, of the Gold Coast and the Noodle Exchange, um, to get anywhere else, you know, you had to sort of fight traffic to get out of the parking lot and get back in. And even with those long dinner breaks, it was kind of hard to get anywhere and eat and get back. And, you know, I guess being on the strip, it's a lot easier to, to get somewhere on a dinner break and, and get out of the um, Rio food monopoly. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. Uh First of all, I'm I'm probably not the right person to uh, have this discussion with because I'm not picky when it comes to food at all. Um, but uh, I do uh, know that that area where the um, where the tournaments will be held um, is kind of like congested with congested with um, people, uh, and I imagine that's going to be worse when you pack thousands of poker players in there um even on foot um you probably can't go too far out of that building and expect to be back in a um a reasonable time if you're like you know pushing it for a dinner break or something who knows like maybe the maybe the options in the building are better than the options at the building at rio um to the average person but to me i don't give a shit like food is food um but I thought it was some reasonable options here, like that far place. I think people tend to like, seem to like that. And like you said, I bet you you can get to the noodle exchange and back quicker than you can get to, I don't know, like what other places on the strip where people want to go to besides the things that are in Bally's and Paris. Or maybe that's just the point, that there's just better options in the building there. Yeah, maybe. I, I don't really know that. Um, I guess I don't know the strip well in general, but that part of the strip in particular has has been kind of at least a higher stakes poker desert for a while. So I haven't really had a lot of cause to go to like Paris or Bally's to even have a strong sense of, of like I have a little better sense of what kind of food is available at um, 
you know, like uh, around Bellagio or uh, the Wynn, and I don't know, or Venetian. Um, I don't know as much about the options right around uh, Paris and Bellies. Yeah, if people are thinking, if, if these Venetian regs are thinking like, oh, we're, cl- we're on the strip now, so now I can go <laughs> eat at my fa- my favorite Venetian restaurant and be back in time. That's not happening. <laughs> um, any other WSAP stuff you want to talk about, or should we do some strategy? Yeah, let's jump into the strategy. All right. Uh, before we do that, I do, of course, want to remind people that you can get lots and lots of strategy from us at patreon.com slash thinkingpokerdaily. Uh, you can subscribe there and you can get daily strategy segments from Carlos and me. And uh, we have, I'd say, at least as much fun with those as we do with the, the strategy segments here. Um, and I have a new book out, which is uh, Central Poker Concepts Volume 2. Um, some people might not know there was an Essential Poker Concepts Volume 1 because I didn't do a great job of promoting it. So <laughs> to you, maybe I have two new books out, which is even better news. <laughs> these, uh, actually, this is fitting for being the uh, interview with Ben Sexton. Um, these are these are collections of uh, articles that I've written over the years for 2 Plus 2 magazine. I kind of went back through my full archive and selected the pieces that I felt like were still relevant for today. You know, In some cases, I updated things if, if I felt like there was something that I could word better than I had at the time. Um, but these are kind of, compared to like the Play Optimal Poker books, this is much lighter reading. You know, these are meant to be kind of, um, they're, they're written in a more colloquial tone. You know, it's, it's not like, not trying to establish things as, as rigorously. Uh, it's, it's covering some of the same material. I mean, it was interesting looking at this and seeing that I was already you know, working on, on some, even several years before Play Optimal Poker came out, already working on like some of the ideas that, that ended up going into that book. But there's also a lot of stuff that's more just kind of bigger picture thinking about um, what kind of mindset is needed to like get, get better at poker, what that's going to look at, look, what that's going to look like. Um, this is kind of what you might call like soft skills. Um, and there's a lot more like examples and you know, stories and humorous things. And it's just, just generally a much lighter tone than what you would found in, uh, in Play Optimal Poker. So those Essential Poker Concepts books are available. Uh, the paperback is only through Amazon. Um, and of course, you can get a Kindle version at Amazon or uh, ebooks you can also get directly from us at www.nitcast.com, N-I-T-C-A-S-T.com. All right, so we have a strategy question which came to us from Aaron, and Aaron was wondering uh, generally about some thoughts on, you know, what are some things that might derail a session for someone who is an otherwise winning player? Uh, so Aaron suggested a few things like maybe having a, a calling frequency that, that's too high or over-relying on reads. I, I think kind of what they're driving at is like if, if your fundamental strategy is, is correct, like you're good enough to be a, a winning player, what are some things that might cause you not to, um, not to play well during a particular session? Like what, what are some like pitfalls? Um, my uh, initial thought on this, I, I think you know, Aaron's suggestion of over-reliance on reads is, is an interesting one. Um, this is something that 
I think especially for live players, I think people become very accustomed to being able to craft strategies that are like quite specific to to a specific opponent. And in fact, like if you play in the in the same card room, you probably have a lot of regular opponents where you know how they play fairly well, and you can predict really with a much higher degree of accuracy than you really should expect at the poker table because they're not great players you often have like a very strong sense of what kind of hand they have and you can make highly exploitative plays against them in cases where you may not even be aware that you're doing something exploitative like you're just sort of in this environment where and and you're like how you think about poker is is so highly evolved for this particular environment that you're probably doing things that you don't even are, are not even aware are specific to that environment so anytime something unknown is introduced a player you haven't encountered before or certainly if you play in a different place which is it's probably also relevant for people going to vegas right now you're used to playing with the locals in your card room and then now you're even if you're playing the same stakes you're just playing a two five game in vegas instead um you're going to encounter Different. They might not even be any better than the people you're playing against, but they're just different. And things that you're used to working or being able to assume with your, your regular opponents are not going to work there. So I think having a sense of the, the fundamentals, um, of kind of knowing like what would be my play as a default, and then what are the cases where I'm, I'm you know, deviating from that based on some specific... Um, player or, or, or tendency of a, a player i think that's a problem where like there's different ways to be good some people are good in terms of they're very good at figuring out you know sort of reading people or, or getting a sense of how people are playing and taking advantage of that and that is a, that's a legitimate it's a very legitimate poker skill but it's just good to know that that's only one skill and that's only going to serve you in certain contexts and so if you are one of those people who's very good at that i think that's a potential pitfall is like you want to develop, make sure you're developing other skills as well so that you're capable of playing against people you're less familiar with. Yeah, that, that, that makes a lot of sense to me. Uh, when I initially heard this question, my mind went to like the classic um, of, of like tilt. <laughs> uh, tilt is like the thing that most people think of when they think of what turns a winning player into a losing player. Um, but that's like a one-word answer. <laughs> I want to uh, give more than that. Um, and then the other things I kind of like put on my list here are like just other forms of tilt, like boredom. Um, you can kind of view that as tilt. That's another thing that causes people to um, um, become losing players. Um, one that would be a little bit more helpful um, to our correspondent here um, would be uh, um, like the wrong type of scorekeeping. Mm. Um, this is something that affects a lot of people. Um, even in this question, um, I don't see the exact wording, but maybe the way you brought it in, it's like, if you're a winning player, like to me, <laughs> in the long run, we don't have a better way of of, um, um, keeping up with this um, for live players, but, but we kind of use like money as determining who's a winning player and who's a losing player. But in a session, that's really not a good way to keep score when you're at the table. Um, so if you're like um, down money um, at the table, a lot of times that causes tilt and causes winning players to start playing worse and lose when they may be down money even though they've been playing well. So if you can learn to keep score based on the quality of your decisions as opposed to the size of your stack, 
that can help you avoid becoming a losing player as well. So um, scorekeeping in poker should be about um, the, the quality of the decisions you make, not how much money you have in the session. Um, uh, it would be nice if there was a way for live players to um, have that sort of qualitative scorekeeping uh, over the long run, but there's just not. So we just kind of like use money instead. Um, the other thing that your comments about over-reliance on reads kind of like sparked in me is that I do think it's true that you don't want to be too overly reliant on physical reads. But if you're doing a good job of table selecting and you're in a soft game, I think you do want to be over-reliant. I don't even know if over is the right word because you can't over-rely on this um, too much. You, you you should rely on reads based on how you've seen people play. Oh, absolutely. So, for, so for example, like, um, if you notice a guy is, like, limping all the time and calling all the time and generally being very passive, and then at some point he does something aggressive, I don't want you to think that, oh, I don't want to put too much stock into this passive read that I put on him. Like, he could be bluffing here sometimes. No. Those sort, of, those sort of reads you should rely on. And if you don't feel comfortable making and relying on those sort of reads, then you're probably in a tougher game than you need to be. <laughs> so table select and rely on play style reads um, as much as you can. But do be careful how much you rely on physical reads um, about people that you've never played with before. Yeah, I, I didn't mean to. Um, or hopefully, I didn't come across as you know saying don't don't rely on reads. It's more to, you know, be aware that that that's what you're doing. Um, the other thing I, I thought of when you were saying that, or when you were talking about like the tilt and the different things that that can trigger that, and especially the the scorekeeping, I think a lot of that is is just related to expectations. Um, yeah. Of you know, people feeling like it's uh, an anomaly if you're not winning. I mean happens literally happens in the rest of us, right? like whoever the best poker player in the world is you know maybe like 70 percent of their sessions are depending on who they're playing against but even like the the frequency with which you have with which you have winning sessions is really not an important metric i mean you could you could lose more sessions than you win and still be a heavily winning poker player if your wins are a lot bigger than your losses um, so you know, it really is just about that focusing on the on the decisions, and when you get too wrapped up in uh, short term results of any form, whether it's are you winning or losing, or you know, the, uh, getting a stretch of bad cards, like that's totally normal and, and expected, or bad beats. You know, the, the, there's something sort of anomalous that like, you deserve to win when you have the best hand. Um, I think all these things that are, are bad expectations or, or inaccurate expectations. <laughs> like I guess you can expect whatever you want, but you're going to be disappointed if you expect that you know you're you're always going to win and you have the best hand and you're never going to have losing nights or like if only you played better you would never have a losing night <laughs> you know the, those kinds of beliefs um i think the, the more you can do and I, I think like when i say those things everyone kind of understands rationally that those they of course you're going to get bad beat of course you're going to have losing nights but you probably there's like a gut level we all need to continually convince ourselves of that and um do everything we can to like establish those expectations because it's i mean it again happens to the best of us like everyone gets frustrated when things aren't going their way but i think you can get less frustrated and respond less to it if you are 
prepared for things <laughs> to not go your way. And of course, that's triply true if you're playing a tournament with 8,000 runners, right? I mean, the um, the likelihood <laughs> of you winning the main event as the best player in the world is still extremely low. And, you know, you're, just, you're going to lose most tournaments you enter. Um, you're not even going to go especially deep in most tournaments you enter. And you are in for a long and miserable summer if you're going to get pissed off every time, you know, you get bad beat out of a tournament <laughs> or whatever. Uh, and so I think, you know, doing, doing what you can to, like, establish the right expectations will help you play that A-game more consistently. Yeah, you you kind of nailed the reason I didn't play the main event last year, because <laughs> I realized that I'm at a point in my career and my life and my bankroll now that cashing it doesn't ex- excite me as much as it used to, and so now it's like I need to like final table, and I'm thinking like yeah, that's probably not gonna happen. Uh, I don't have to win, but it would be nice to make the final table. But um, uh, yeah. That that's very unlikely to happen, and I'm probably not, you know, um, the best player in the world. <laughs> so my chances are worse than that players. Uh, and yeah, I wasn't really interested in playing for that reason. But um, then Jeff Platt started interviewing everybody at tableside, saying, "Stand up, please," and I wanted him to tell me to stand up. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that's the reason I wasn't playing this year. Um, uh, but uh, to get back on topic, um, you you hit on something else that is a big deal for me online, and this does apply live as well. This is something I tell my students often. You're going to uh, lose more tournaments than you uh, win or cash, and even on a hand-by-hand basis, you're probably going to lose more hands than you win, but the way you become a winning player is to keep the losses to a minimum. And that way, when you have the the infrequent wins, they're enough to cover the losses and then some. And I think that's important for live players as well, especially, I mean, not especially, but I feel like this question is mostly geared towards a cash, live cash game player. So I'm trying to relate that idea um, to that environment. It's like people, like the best way to lose money in poker is to try too hard mm-hmm. to win pots. And when you try too hard to win pots that you really aren't um, supposed to win, what ends up happening is you make your losses bigger than they need to be. And when you eventually get that big win, it's not enough to cover those big losses. So I see this very frequently playing online when I look at my database. Probably like, I'm just going to throw a number out there. Like the first 20 hands I play in a tournament i probably lose 15 of them. But those are probably like two to five big blind losses because I don't take it too far in the hand out of curiosity or whatever else able to like not fold to riverbeds. <laughs> uh, and, the, and the five wins are usually big wins because I'm up against people who don't fold to my riverbeds. And those big wins are enough to cover the, the those five big wins are enough to cover the fifteen small losses, but so many people have fifteen big losses because you know curiosity kills them on the river, and those five wins aren't enough to cover. So it's clear, clearly visible to me in my database. But again, live players don't have access to that, so they may not be conscious of how trying too hard to win pots 
are causing those frequent losses to be too big um, so that the infrequent wins aren't enough to cover them and, and leave a profit. I would say that trying too hard to win pots uh, can also result in you winning less, right? Like if you are overly concerned about protecting yourself yeah. from getting drawn out on to the point where like every time you have a big hand, but there's a flush draw on the board, you just bet huge and are like, please fold your flush draw. I just want to take down this pot. <laughs> um, I mean, some people literally say that out loud. <laughs> yeah. uh, but I mean, that also is an excessive concern with winning the pot as opposed to making the highest EV decision. You know, all of your decisions in poker are navigating risk and reward and there's generally i mean it's you certainly can't get much reward without risk um you know i, I suppose if you flop a royal flush uh you know you've, you've got a no risk situation there but for the most part you know there there's always some amount of risk involved so it's not just about you know how do i stop bad things from happening or how do i prevent bad things from happening it is you know every single decision you make you're you're or supposed to be, and the way you're going to increase your, your win rate is you know, always trying to navigate that risk and reward and understanding that some of the things that you know, we talked about when we were talking about establishing expectations, like getting drawn out or even just getting a bad river card that prevents you from value betting or results in you getting bluffed out, or just all, the, all the various unlucky things that can happen at the poker table, all of that is, is baked in. And you know you um, those things are going to happen as a result of you playing well. Those aren't mistakes you made and they aren't the universe out to get you. That's exactly what good winning poker looks like is those things happening. That's not an anomaly. That's what it's supposed to look like. Yes. Anything else you want to say on that? No. Um, yeah, just um, make good decisions and let everything else worry about itself. Yeah. Uh, that that's what's that's what's worked for me. Yeah. All right, let's go get Ben Sexton three weeks ago. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, uh, Ben, welcome back to the show, and uh, and thank you for making the time for us. Absolutely, great to be back. I, I was trying to think. Um, I guess I could just look this up, but I never did. <laughs> um, the last time I, I remember, it, it was pretty early in the pandemic because I remember making the, the prediction, which seems clearly to have been wrong, <laughs> that that uh, poker might really suffer a blow as a result of like people. Just, taking up other hobbies while casinos were closed and then kind of getting out of the routine of uh, playing poker. And that does not certainly appear to have been the case. No, not at all. I, I was trying to think the last time we, we talked and it was, I think it was maybe a month in to the pandemic after the initial delusions were shattered of like, well, maybe this won't be a thing. Maybe the, may, for me, it was, we, we, my, a couple of friends and I had, had, had scheduled a, a March madness trip for some basketball watching and poker playing. And, and that, that ended very quickly. So when we spoke, I think we were, yeah, just sort of making predictions and it was still somewhat early, maybe like, I guess it must've been spring, spring 2020. So it's, it's so, crazy to think it's been a few years. So I, I just looked this up. It's April 28, 2020, episode 324. It was actually titled Pandemic Poker with Ben Saxton. All right. Thank you, Carlos. So it's been almost exactly <laughs> two years. 
Yeah, and what a, what a two years it's been. Um, how, how have y'all been doing? I mean, I, I try to listen to to the episodes y'all put out. I listened to the, a couple of the most recent ones. Um, yeah, how, how are you guys? Best two years of my life. <laughs> I think I think I may have tweeted a congratulations to you, but but if not, <laughs> congratulations on the bracelet, um, among other things. <laughs> I don't know if that's what you're thinking of with your the best year. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. This is, um, you know, this was kind of like a half joke thing that we talked about at the beginning of the pandemic, but it really is. It, it really has been. Like, <laughs> my life has been so much better since COVID. It's, it's ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> it's like I, I mean, um, pandemics are, you know, um, supposed to be. Um, uh, not good times for people, but I guess you get a few lucky few. Um, in addition to the um, the uh, winning the bracelet, just um, um, have an opportunity to host this podcast with Andrew, as well as Thinking Poker Daily that we started during the pandemic. Um, like those two things are a big part of my life now that were not um, as big before. Um, so um, the money is nice, but um, more conversations with Andrew um, is pretty good as well. Yeah, I, I was yeah. going to say it's definitely been a highlight for me. Um, I mean, I, I think I started off, maybe even I said this when I was talking to you, that uh, I felt a lot better suited to um, the kind of like isolation that, that the pandemic uh, imposed and is still imposing on people. Um, and, and I think it's true that I was better suited to that. Uh, <laughs> after a while, it, it, it has gotten old. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, ha- having the impetus to talk to Carlos uh, multiple times a week has certainly been uh, a bright spot for me. Absolutely, yeah. And I feel like venues like this, whether it's podcasts or, or vlogs or Discord groups, I mean, I think that's a, a way that a lot of us have have connected. I, I do remember last time we spoke. I, I was adjusting to um, to Zoom life because I, I, uh, <laughs> I teach, and so suddenly I'm no longer in a classroom. And and so we were kind of, you know, it was an experiment in progress in in building a digital community. And so that, you know, for better and for worse, has been how we've been went been operating. So yeah, I'm glad to glad to hear. Uh, y'all are really enjoying the collaboration. I know I certainly am. While I'm also missing Nate, um, it's it's kind of it's obviously a, a, a mixed a mixed bag. But but yeah, really really right. glad to hear that that y'all are enjoying the the collaboration. And um, uh, Carlos, are you based in Vegas these days, or or where are you? Yes. So um, currently, I'm in Laughlin, which is two hours below Vegas. But I bounce back and forth between the two. Um, but yeah, just I was I would say the um, the Vegas area. Okay, okay, um, and that that's been how has that been during the pandemic? Actually, that's been better as well because initially, um, so I started spending more time in Vegas um, when I got the diamond card that was. I guess uh, around a year ago exactly um, is when I might have been to the day um, that I got the card. And um, so I was able to get rooms at the Rio without paying resort fees. Um, But then a year of that 
between like paying for rooms and also um, playing at the Rio, I was able to get enough like activity on my Caesars Reward account that now they give me comp rooms um, a lot more than they were before. So yeah, um, since the last time, um, since a year ago, um, yeah, even just being in Vegas and Laughlin, that, that's actually why I started coming back to Laughlin because they would basically give me a week in Vegas and a week in Laughlin, then another week in Vegas, and I was just bounce back, bounce back and forth between the two for the comp rooms. That 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 makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I, I have to say that the the summer road trips that I became accustomed to um, going out to Vegas for the World Series visiting my parents who live in southern Arizona and then just doing some meandering camping and hiking. I, I really missed I really missed that the last two years. So I am uh, trying to put together a plan that will happen in some form or fashion th- this summer. I'm, I'm not sure exactly what or what it will entail, but but really looking forward to, to getting back out there. So, Ben, one thing that I associate with you, which may not even be a thing anymore now that the 2 Plus 2 magazine has gone away, which I guess actually we all were regular contributors to, um, but, you know, kind of doing these interviews with uh, not necessarily famous poker players, but people who were local, local color, interesting people that you encountered in, in your poker region. Uh, and I'm curious, like, if, if you're still doing that sort of thing, and also just generally, like, what have you found to be the general... Um, sense as people have like returned to uh to poker rooms yeah yeah um well first of all maybe we, we can all collectively pour one out for two plus two magazine because i know all <laughs> three of us have been collaborators for a long time I, I i think andrew maybe you you were the first um I, but i've been doing it for a real damn long, for time. A long time right <laughs> yeah and i i reached out to um yeah, to, to, to those folks, I want to say in 20, 2015, around the time I, I moved to New Orleans because the impetus for me writing about poker and, and you know, what I see myself doing essentially is, is collecting oral histories and life stories. I mean, the impetus for, for um, moving to, to New Orleans is, you know, to, to, uh, I've been working on a book about uh, poker in New Orleans anchored in the, the, the local card room and in the lives and experiences of some of the regulars there and that's also taken me out to vegas and has kind of structured my time out there so to answer your question about the uh yeah my, my plans and, and the oral history i have to say I, I don't know i don't know what the future holds in terms of that I, I, one of the good things about the two plus two column that I, I called it poker faces in the crowd was that um i mean it's sort of like like a podcast where if you have a sub stack, people are doing that these days, you know, you have a monthly assignment, so to speak, you just know every month it's coming. So that allowed me to kind of, you know, I was always thinking, well, who do I want to talk to next? Who, who do I want to talk to next? And when the magazine got sold, that kind of went away. And uh, the, the monthly, you know, the monthly interview, I, I tended to do a Q&A format you know, that was gone and, and, and in a way that simplified things because it allowed me to focus on teaching and longer, longer form stuff that I'm working on. But on the other hand, um, I mean, I love, I, I think that 
if I if there's one thing I love the most about the poker world, it's the people and the stories. I mean, uh, what a what a wonderful shit show the po- the poker world is. I mean, you, <laughs> it's just an endless assortment of of people and stories. And so, I mean, I've I've done I've done hundreds of interviews at this point, and you know, I've obviously only scratched the surface. So I I think one thing that I've you know I've noticed myself doing, and I, I try to consciously do as part of my my reflective practice of just thinking and writing is just I, I'm I'm constantly renegotiating my relationship to poker, and so I uh, I'm not planning on doing too much in terms of of writing and reporting out in Vegas. Um, there are a couple folks who I really want to talk to because um, their stories just sound so cool. For example, there was a guy. Hopefully there is still a guy, uh, a dealer named Joe, who has dealt in every WSOP, starting in the very first WSOP. <laughs> so I don't know how many that is, that, but I mean, what, what, what are we at? I mean, 40 plus WSOPs um, from the, you know, the old school days on Fremont Street to the Rio era. And so I'm, I'm hoping to catch up with him. We had t- touched base in 2019, which was the last year I was doing reporting out there and we weren't able to schedule an interview. So, uh, yeah, so I, I do have plans to, to, to catch up with a few folks, but I think for me, most of all, the, the importance is like reconnecting with, with my communities. And so th- that means First and foremost, the, the New Orleans poker community. I've already started to, to do that. Um, and that just means like going and playing and catching up with folks and, and just kind of getting back into the, the ebb and flow of card room life, which I, which I you know, was completely out of during the pandemic, obviously. Um, first, not by choice, and then kind of by choice. There was a period where the card room went, yeah, everybody was like masked up and five, action was five-handed. And I was just like not at all interested in going anywhere, let alone a card room. So I didn't play a hand of live poker for over a year. Um, but I have recently started to to go back maybe once a week and, and catch up with folks. And and so when I go out to Vegas this time, I'd like to do some of that as well. You know, with if there is a thinking poker meetup, obviously that, as well as I'm, I'm close with some folks on 2 plus 2. And then I also became very close with the poker media community, the, the live reporters and some of the editors who are behind the scenes. And I really have a lot of respect for what those folks do and would love to catch up with them because it really is kind of like summer camp in a way. And I missed summer camp the last two years and I, I want to recover some of that. Yeah, I'm, I'm a little jealous. Uh, I mean, not that you don't play poker when, when you're there, but it's sort of like for for me the experience of like the summer camp and and the like playing poker are both pretty like taxing. So I kind of have to choose b- between the two. I mean, it's nice to see people, but like I'm not really doing. Even when I was younger, I wasn't really doing a lot of just like hanging out with people or like going to bars after playing for you know like I'm not trying to play like a 12 hour day and then like go to the club afterwards. <laughs> Um, so you know, the the whole summer camp aspect of it has to take a sideline for me, um, with the exception of people like you know when when Carlos or Dara, someone has been able to like been able to share a house with them. There's a little more opportunity to, to have some some downtime and, and hang out with them. Um, but yes, I'm I'm kind of jealous of people who get to put that uh, first in some in some ways. 
Yeah, for sure. And, and um, you know, it's, it's, the grass is always greener to some degree. I think it's a cliche that, that poker journalists, poker writers are failed poker players. And, you know, when, when you, and you know, there's some truth to that, I'm sure. And, you know, when you, you hang out with those folks and then I, you know, I was one of them, um, you know, there's always the kind of the flip side of, of the folks who kind of re-enter the fray. So, so I think it's, for me, it was, it was important early on to like define my priorities. So am I going to Vegas to play poker or am I going to Vegas to write about poker? And the entire, the, the entire time I've been, been, been going out there, you know, five, five summers and uh, it's been to write, to write about poker. And that has taken a lot of different forms and it is summer camp. It is also a hell of a lot of work, especially if you do live reporting. I think the live reporters are um, really, it's a very thankless job. And I, I would say I, my, my heart goes out to the live reporters most of all. And I did that only one, only one summer. I think that was 2016 and I learned a ton. And those days were long days because you have to get to the to your tournament before the tournament starts, and you have to write up the recap after everybody bags. So we were talking about like ten or eleven in the morning. To I mean, there were days I didn't leave till like four a.m. Um, so yeah, it, it's it's a very it's tricky. It's tricky to to kind of define your priorities, but I'm definitely looking forward to being back in some form or fashion. I know I won't be doing live reporting, so that's that's a good thing. Have you noticed changes in, um, I guess, kind of like the, just the, the, the general atmosphere? So I mean, I've barely been in a poker room. I've been in a poker room maybe three times in the last two years. Uh, and so I have not had a lot of opportunity to, to make these observations. But I'm, I'm curious if you've noticed just a sort of a general change in in the atmosphere i think what has struck me the most given that i'm only coming in every now and then is how little has changed like if i were to go in so i played this this weekend i played for a couple hours on a friday night and uh yeah, I think that that the the action in New Orleans and the the culture is it's it's very it feels normalish in a way that I'm not entirely comfortable with because um, yeah, this pandemic thing is not is not over as much as we would like to pretend that it is. And for a long time, the mask we had a mask mandate, a citywide mask mandate, and a you also need to show proof of vax to get in, in uh, restaurants and bars and the casino. And that's all gone now. So, you know, you basically have about 90, 95% of folks unmasked playing. The, you know, the, the regulars, you know, I'm someone who's very good with recognizing faces, uh, especially contextually. Like, so if I show up at a, at a table and I and I, I I'll know if I've played poker with you, um, whether it's like three years ago or five years ago. But I'm I'm terrible with names actually. So just by the eye test alone, it's amazing. I mean, the number of regulars who you know two three years later they're just in there. They stack their chips the same way. <laughs> they're they, you know they tell the same stories. The pots are the same size, and so that has also remained pretty constant. I, I, th I do think one thing that has changed considerably is, and this is something that you know every local 
ecosystem has to sort out is like uh, just the action, the flow of money. And a lot of people, a lot, a lot of the pros, they're just they're just not in town anymore. They are in Texas. <laughs> a lot of people moving to Texas. Everybody talking about the Texas action. And so I think that the the games are playing smaller. The action is uh, not as good. But but I'm I'm hearing all this pretty much secondhand because I uh, before before we we got on the call I just out of curiosity look to see how much poker I've played this year. And I've played 100 hours this year, which is like something, but it's it's really not that much. So I'm mostly relying on secondhand info and just word of mouth. But um, I think folks are still just trying to figure out where, where the action is. You know, during the pandemic, a lot of the action went underground. A lot of it went on to like Poker Bros apps, private games. And now I think people are trying to figure out where the best games are and I think a lot of the best games are in Texas from what I have have heard um, yeah, what about if, what if about you're you? already in um, in New Orleans I guess you're hopping over to Texas is not uh, that I mean not that people aren't moving from other places but I think especially like just hopping over there from New Orleans is less of an ask absolutely and some people some people had been commuting from New Orleans to say Houston or Dallas and and then they just ended up mo- moving there. But yeah, it's it's obviously a bigger ask if you're in the northeast or something like that. Sorry, I think I cut you off. I was just wondering what what y'all sense was. I mean, Andrew, I know you haven't played live much or at all, um but I'm sure you've been talking to talking to people and um, I'd, be, I'd just be interested to hear your, your perspective on that same question of like if we're back to quote unquote normal or not. Yeah, I mean, I, I think what you said about the, the kind of it feels maybe more normal than it should. <laughs> um, uh, and, and I certainly like understand people's desire. To, I feel like there's probably some people who are already upset with this conversation. Um, and like it's something I've been a little reluctant to talk about, just knowing that that you know people have such uh, strong opinions on it. But um, yeah, I mean it's it's a tricky thing. Yeah, yeah, I'll jump in and say this because I've kind of felt the same way you uh, feel about. Um, you know, being careful around um, the subject because um, people feel so strongly about it. But um, the people who are on the other side of it, they're kind of having their way right now. So they can kind of like deal with a little bit of conversation. <laughs> like, like <laughs> we can talk about the fact that people are acting like this thing is over when it's not. Um, because they're allowed to act like this thing is over. I was a little bit more sensitive to it when there were more um, restrictions put in place by the local governments. But now, um, yeah, they can deal with our conversation. If I have to deal with their conversations in the elevator, then they can deal with our conversations over the Internet. Thank you, Carlos. That, that's very well said. And it, it did actually remind me of one of the things I wanted to say, which was that um, part of what's kept me from going back and playing like cash game poker is I, I feel like the, the the easing of restrictions has always been like at least one step ahead, I felt like, of where it should be. So um, when they first lifted the mask mandate, like this is like pre-Omicron, you know, uh, whatever it was, like the beginning of 2021, 
and it's so hard to even keep track of <laughs> the, the timing of these things. But like, yeah. the first time that Maryland lifted its its mask mandate, the the claim that the governor made at that time was that like everyone who wanted to get vaccinated had a chance to get vaccinated, um, which was just patently untrue. Like Emily and I got our vaccines within days of becoming eligible for it. And like the, you know, it's what a month between your, your first and your second shot. And so, you know, I, I had not yet had my second shot when they lifted the, the mass mandate. So it was like, okay, I, I could have gone back to, to start playing right then, but then, you know, like I didn't even have my, my vaccine in, in full effect at that point. And uh, yeah, I just feel like they've, they've constantly been lifting things at least a little bit before they should and and so I, every time that i was like okay maybe i'll feel comfortable going back now and they're like oh we're not doing it that way anymore like there's there's no more mass mandate there's there's no more um yes i mean that, that's like a big part of what's what's kept me away and i think that a lot of people um i mean i know there are some people who obviously were like very eager for all those things to go away and just sort of want everything to to go back to the way it used to be um but i think there's also a lot of people who are just going to follow whatever the rules are and like maybe we'll grumble that about them a little bit but it's just like well if the casino is open then i guess it's safe for me to go to the casino and if it's not open then you know i won't go there or if, it, if i'm not required to wear a mask i guess it's safe for me not to wear one like i think a lot of people are not really they're just sort of like trusting whatever the the rules are and uh, i feel like those rules have not been made in a great way yeah. yeah, it's been very it's been very tough to to uh, to follow the conversations and to to think about both you know our own code of conduct so to speak and and also the people and who orbit around us and you know as with anything you can't talk about the state of poker state of live poker without talking about the pandemic and the impact that the pandemic is is going to have you know so I have very little. Uh, well, I have zero firsthand experience with the the fall WSOP. You know, I was obviously following it, but you know, it'll be interesting to see now that the, how the the summer the summer goes because there's no uh, certainly no proof of X, right? I haven't heard anything about it. I would be very so. I mean, I think the only reason they were doing it last year was that they would have had to do a, a mass mandate if they didn't have the the max the vax requirement. So now that they're not going to be required to do masks, I don't think there's any reason why they would uh, require vaccines. Sure. Yeah. I suppose that, yeah, that so could still change in the now. I mean, we have new variants and, and a surge happening right now, so I guess there's a chance that changes, but it seems unlikely. Yeah. Yeah. Also, they have they they're gonna do it at Bally's in Paris now, where there'll be more just like non WSOP foot traffic, where there is no mask mandate or vaccine uh, mandate for the um, non poker gamblers. So it will be hard to um, get any kind of benefit from doing like a vaccine requirement for the WSOP, I think. At the, Re at the Rio, it was mostly poker players doing the WSOP, I think. I don't think you saw too many um, locals, at least down in the tournament area. Have you, have you been playing live much, Carlos, or, or have you been exclusively online? Carlos <laughs> <laughs> would have been exclusively um, online anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, exclusively online because uh, I don't like the fact that, how did you put it, um, uh, poker is a beautiful shit show. I don't like the uh, shit show aspect of it, so I tend to avoid humans. Um, so I primarily play online. I've been at casinos, though, but I usually um, 
try to avoid <laughs> the people that are there other than you know obviously i gotta come in and out which is why i'm um pretty um what what which is why i mentioned the elevator because that's like the worst part of my week when i have to leave <laughs> my room um and there's always someone in there multiple people with no mask that always have to make conversation <laughs> uh, so that's my experience with live casino people but no i haven't um played live the conversation yeah, so in the be- elevator thing feels so specific to las vegas like i don't think there's too many other places where people feel so entitled to have conversations with you on the i mean i guess alcohol is a big part of it but um yeah i feel like it, i way more people trying to strike up conversations in elevators in las vegas than anywhere else that i've ever been yeah, they, they, the, the, the common joke I get, because usually when I'm on the elevator, it's with luggage. <laughs> uh, and they always ask um, if my bags are full of money or uh, are you winning or are you losing and all this stuff that isn't required to talk. I mean, it's like, I feel like when you're in a closed space with no ventilation during a pandemic and you're not wearing a mask, you should probably say as little as possible. <laughs> uh, like you could do a head nod or something, or even high, one word, but to have full-blown unnecessary conversations, um, I almost feel like this is me being paranoid um, and me being on the other side of this argument we, we talked about earlier, but I almost feel like they talk more when they see me with my mask on mm-hmm. like they know it irks me yeah <laughs> that's how that's how i feel but that, that, that's probably just paranoia I'll, I'll admit that but um yeah it's amazing how you be you know five six people on an elevator and there's usually one and often five or six that just talk nonstop. and <laughs> i don't know I don't understand that. I don't think it's just a Vegas thing. I think it's probably more, happens more in Vegas. But um, I think it's a thing where people are uncomfortable with silence. <laughs> and uh, was it was it you? There, there was somebody I saw, I saw a tweet or something where somebody said, um, um, you know the silence wouldn't be so awkward for you if you allowed yourself to get used to it. <laughs> uh, it wasn't me, but I like it. Yeah, I heard, I heard something like that, and I was like, that's what it is, man. Like, they get in the elevator, and nobody's saying anything, so for, they, they feel like they got to crack a joke because um, the silence is awkward. But if you just, you know, if you're silent enough times, eventually it becomes normal. So, Ben, you mentioned... Um you use the term like sorting out our code of conduct or something like that. And, and this actually gets to something that was kind of the deciding factor for me on uh, not not coming out to do tournaments this year, which is, um, I'm curious, both of you, you guys, what's your reaction to this? Like imagining a scenario, which I think is an extremely plausible scenario, where you make day two of a tournament. Uh, you know, these are mostly multi-day turn- WCP events and even at the other venues, mostly multi-day tournaments. You make day two of a tournament and you start experiencing, you know, COVID symptoms. Um, are are you even bothering to to test? Would it affect your decision if you if you took a test and found out you were positive? I mean, no one's compensating you for for just forfeiting your stack if you don't play the next day. I mean, it seems to me there's no good way to handle that situation. 
Yeah, I'm that's Ben. Yeah, I, <laughs> I, I I know you are, Carlos. Even though you're you're the live tournament guy, but but um. No, I'm not. <laughs> I'm the exact well, opposite. I think you're the yeah. That, that's fair. That's fair. I, I think of you as the live tournament guy, even though in in fact you're not. Um, but it's a, it's like the I feel like that is that is maybe the that is the hypothetical question to ponder, you know, because I, uh, you know, I, I'm actually just playing cash these days. I haven't played a live tournament since before the pandemic, even though I really enjoy thinking about tournaments. Uh, one of the t- deterrents for me is this multi-day or the potential multi-day format. I love being able to kind of play for a little while and just racking up, but. The first thing, my, my, my knee-jerk response to that question, if I'm feeling crappy, is, I mean, of course I'm going to get tested. And, and if I'm positive, of course I'm going to just bow out, let people know. But at some point, like, I would have to seriously pause and consider the the alternative, like if I'm a, say, like, yeah, let's I mean, just say this that could be I'm tens of thousands leader. of dollars in equity. Yeah. Let's just say I'm the chip leader in the main and I start feeling crappy and I get tested and I'm positive. I mean, that's a really, that's a really tough dilemma, even though maybe it shouldn't be, maybe, maybe, maybe it's, it's, it's sort of an irrelevant distinction. The, but for me, I don't, I, I think it's very relevant. Um, and I would start thinking about, alternatives like i don't i don't even know what the alternatives would be i mean obviously you wear a mask but you can't socially distance and and so uh i mean my my so the short easy answer for me because because if i played in a tournament it would not be the main event it would probably be some you know you know five hundred dollar thing at the golden nugget or i would i would yeah i would not continue to play for sure um but it's a it's a tough decision, especially when you are you know you're going out there and in the interest of um, you know of maximizing EV, going deep, and uh, this has just complicated that question. I mean, this being like the potential for getting COVID in in, in so many ways. So I let me let me just toss that question around because I feel like it's a, it's a really interesting, important important question. Yeah, I'll. I'll answer it this way. Basically, um, sort of what you said. Like, if if it's my normal tournaments where, you know, maybe 500 to 1,000, then, yeah, I'm not going to um, show up the next day and risk people um, catching COVID. Also, um, I also I also don't like multi-day tournaments. Not for that reason, just because I want to spend as little time around humans as possible. Um, but if... We are, if, if I'm like chip leader in the main event, like deep, you know, day five or six or something, um, hopefully everybody's vaccinated because I'm showing up for that. Um, and if that makes me an asshole, I'm an asshole. But that spot's a little bit too big for me to pass up. Yeah, I mean, I kind of, so I, I believe two things. Like, one, there are plenty of people who, for whom this is not even a question and like they're showing up and they're not wearing a mask. Uh, like I, I think there are a, a substantial number of people who will be playing the tournament who will fall into that category. I think they're probably not even getting a test. Um, and I think like you have to play understanding that that's, that's going to be a possibility. So, I mean, a, I don't like the idea that I know other people <laughs> will be doing that. Um, but secondly, I, I don't want to put myself in that 
in that spot. Um, I mean, I, I, I yeah. kind of understand, or, or I would, I would say essentially like that's the social contract you're accepting. If, if you're playing at the WSFA is like, there are going to be people, I mean, 100%, there are going to be people with going, you, you have that many at, at the rates that we currently have, you have that many people in the, in the convention center. Like there are going to be people with COVID in there. Um, and some of them may not be aware of it. Some of them may be actively trying not to find out about it. Um, and some of them may be aware of it and, and just playing anyway. So I essentially feel like people, that's a risk that people are accepting by, by playing the tournament. And I, I kind of wouldn't feel obligated to um, like protect them from that. I would say you're sort of, you're signing up for that by, by playing the tournament. But at the same time, I don't really want to, I guess I just don't want to be in that, in that position. Um, I don't really trust my own decision-making in that position. And I certainly don't trust a lot of other people's decision-making in that uh, position. Yeah, yeah, I think I think that's a good way to look at it. I was actually thinking about playing the main event this year, but uh, that's giving me pause. Some other things, other conversations I've had recently are giving me pause. Um, but you know what? Uh, one thing that uh, is going to be beneficial, I think, for me this year um, and probably going forward for live tournaments would be um, the ability to late reg. Um, well, I guess that's always been the ability, but um, the um, um, the benefit of late regging that I learned about in um, Daryl Kearney's book, um, like that's something I'm going to take a lot of advantage of because it works both ways for me. Like there's a slight financial benefit for it, but also... If you don't like playing live poker, you'll oftentimes end up playing like less than an orbit and you get to leave, <laughs> which is a win-win. <laughs> you, you know, you get in a flip and either you win the hand or you get to leave. And that's a win-win for me. So um, that will, will cut down on some of the potential um, COVID exposure as well. So, um, yeah. So I will probably play some live poker uh, you can't see my air quotes but i'll play some live tournaments this year but oftentimes it will be you know coming in with 10 bigs and losing a flip and leaving <laughs> and I'm, I'm okay with that amount of risk. um so yeah carlos i had i had one question um uh, i guess that's related to that uh you know you mentioned earlier about how you know the sort of awkward the awkward elevator conversations and the, they're, they're obviously completely unnecessary and, and we, we all kind of hate them. Um, um, do you, do you approach conversations at the table in the same way or do you see them as fundamentally different? I mean, cause they're, they're suddenly part of this metagame and are, are you just still trying to kind of disengage or are you kind of happy to, to participate in conversation, listen to conversation, or are, are your headphones going on the minute you sit down? Carlos won't even talk to me at the headphones table. <laughs> headphones are on as soon as I sit down. I play with multiple friends, um, some of which I was staying with at the time, and then show up at the table together, talk the whole way there, and as soon as we're in the game, I don't talk to them. Um, so with strangers, yeah, I'm definitely not engaging in any of these conversations. Um, for the most part, not listening. And I used to show up with headphones thinking that, you know, that showed that I was not interested in conversations and it would prevent people from trying to talk to me. 
but that stopped working. Like they were still trying to like, like tap me, so I'll take the thing out and then listen to what they say or whatever. But um, my new weapon is I show up with my iPad and I watch um, very aggressive battle rap. <laughs> and now with headphones in, for all they know, I could be listening to Mozart. Uh, but I was listening to some pretty like, you know, like if they knew what I was listening to, they probably wouldn't try to talk to me. But now I've kind of like ratcheted that up and like now I got a visual of what I'm listening to. And they're like, oh, this guy's watch. This guy's listening to gang fights. So he's probably not somebody I want to talk to because <laughs> like the battle raps look pretty aggressive. I mean, it's basically just a poetry contest, but they don't know that. Um, but that's a good deterrent for keeping people from trying to um, engage in uh, pointless conversations with me at the table. Yeah, that, I mean, that's just a, it's a constant struggle. And, you know, it's, a, it's an area of great <laughs> entertainment and suffering, depending on who you are. You know, for somebody <laughs> like me, um, I, I really do appreciate those, those exchanges. Um, you know, just independent of any of any metagame. Like, I, I just sort of appreciate sitting down at, like, some some card room in rural Florida and seeing who shows up. Um, but then, you know, at some point I reach my own, my own breaking point, we all do, where, where you just don't want to engage. And, and uh, you know, I, I tend to be a, more of a natural listener than a talker. So I think it helps being in, in that, in mm. the card room setting, because... You know, one key difference, I think, of, like, card table conversation and elevator conversation, and I think it's a lovely thing about poker, is that you're in this social space surrounded by people, but there's no, like, there's no expectation of conversation. You know, there's there's no, there's not really an awkward silence, so, like, we need to break this silence with some sort of conversation. You know, you're just playing your, your hand. Um, so I'm always interested to hear how how folks na navigate that and so when you when you mentioned the elevator example it start, started getting me to think about well how is carlos uh how is carlos at the table because there, there's actually a decent amount of expectation more than i would have imagined um like i've been trying for years to develop ways to avoid this expectation and this battle rap thing is like my new genius um uh, idea but even that's not foolproof. Like, there was a guy um, sitting next to me one day, and um, uh, demographically, you would just assume this guy probably is into um, very aggressive battle rap. But he was clearly trying to talk to me. I was clearly ignoring him. And this went on for long enough to where he tapped me and asked me, he was like, uh, what are you watching? Like he wanted to now talk about battle rap because when he when he wanted to talk to me about what I had in that last hand, I wasn't interested. When he wanted to talk to me about you know the dealer's tits, I wasn't interested. <laughs> when he wanted to talk to me about sports or whatever the hell people talk about at poker tables, I wasn't interested in all that stuff. So he honed in on the one thing he knew I was interested in. And then pretended to be interested in it <laughs> just to get me just to talk to me. And I'm thinking like, why, man? There's like at least five other people at this table that would be 
super willing to talk to you. Why are you fucking with me? <laughs> the throw of the chest. It's weird, man. And the thing is, I don't mind talking to people when we're not at the table. At the table, they usually want to talk about um, strategy, which is not going to happen. Or they want to talk about things that... <laughs> it's funny that I'm, I'm saying this out loud now, but I, like for years I've said that usually... Um, I'm usually like the only black person at the table, one of the only black people. And most of the time the conversations aren't things like the standard conversation wouldn't be things I would be interested in talking about. That's another reason I, I'm pretty quiet at the table because the things I like are very specific. Like top two on that list are poker and rap. Can't talk about poker at the table. And most of the people I play poker with don't want to talk about rap. But then this guy, this guy actually wanted to talk about rap, but he actually didn't want to talk about rap. He just that that actually makes it worse for me. Now he wants to use this thing that I like as a ploy to just get me to talk to him about something, and that's even like worse than if he was like an actual rap fan. Um, but yeah, um, point being, at the table, I'm like trying to focus. Um, I'm not really interested in these conversations, but away from the table, like on breaks or just walking down the hall yeah i don't mind having conversations then like that that's what i enjoy um meeting and talking to people but not at the table and that includes like i mentioned people that i'm already friends with i really like the um I, i'm not necessarily going to have conversations at the table not that i've never had interesting ones but i i do enjoy the fly on the wall aspect of like i, I don't want to listen to someone talk to me but i do like listen to them talk to each other often or even just sort of talk out loud and, and see the way they're kind of processing things and um, i mean that's one of the things that, that uh, i miss is like documenting this stuff on on twitter and just being like sharing these little like tidbits or, or, or vignettes or something. I, I mean, I guess it's it's sort of a, a very short form version of uh, of what you're doing, Ben, with, with your with your longer interviews. But just trying to capture a little bit of these um, moments and, and, and personalities that some of them I think are things that would only happen at a poker table, and some of them are just uh, it's just a, there's a lot of types of people that I would encounter through poker that I never would encounter in any other aspect of my life. So it's. Um, kind of interesting to like experience those things but it's gotten tricky as i've become less anonymous uh both i, mean, I think some people know me from the podcast and some people just like knowing or following me on twitter or like i'll tweet something and then they'll be like oh hey that was me <laughs> you know like they're they're at the table oh, i have yeah. no idea oh, who God. they are but they're like <laughs> following me on twitter and, and, and recognizing like it, it's not even necessarily a bad thing although that's happened too <laughs> but, but even if it's not a bad thing it's just sort of weird that like i'm trying to be a fly on the wall and then people are like realizing that i'm documenting this thing in in real time Oh yeah, yeah. I've no, I've, I remember. I, I don't. I don't know if you do it anymore, but I do remember s some of the. Um, yeah, your kind of entertaining tweets involving like de dealers and and just different quotes at the table, and I, that's the sort of thing that I that I also really enjoy. And uh, I mean, there's no question that it's like bad for my game. Like if I'm if I'm trying to approach the the game as a poker player first and foremost. I mean, it's just a distraction. I'm, I'm definitely like distracting myself by minutia when I should be thinking about, um, you know, my whole cards and 
the action and whatnot. Um, but I, I don't care. I mean, it, it, for me, it, it does kind of get back to this priority of like, well, what am I actually doing here? And I, I do, not always, but often, I, you know, I, I still often approach the card room as this, yeah, as this microcosm for life and American culture. And um, I, I really do enjoy those exchanges, and I and I'm not you know I am not going to give it up. I do think it's possible to balance the two to play like somewhat well, and also be entertained and maybe even learn something. You know, because I, I I think uh, you know I'm sure we've talked about this before at some point, but uh, you know one of the reasons why I love card rooms uh, is because it's it's truly a very um, it's just an incredibly diverse space, and you know you have people from every walk of life coming in, and not and not only coming in but sitting down, and obviously that can lead to. I mean, there was recently like some brawl, I think, where a guy throwing throwing a table around. This can lead to some really rough situations, but it, it can also lead to some interesting exchanges, and I'm I'm here for it. Yeah, um, cultural uh, fisticuff exchanges. I think this was a. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think uh, the the particular video you're talking about, where uh, it was a, a fist fight between two people who probably culturally wouldn't be spending a lot of time with each other, but being at a poker table gave my opportunity to um, uh, yell your mama to each other and start a fight. <laughs> but what, what, one thing I wanted to piggyback on that you said, um, uh, I kind of realized at some point. Um, in the past two or three years or so, that um, the, a lot of the softer games that I play in are kind of like, in a way, like public home games. In a lot of these spaces where, like, you know, you have regulars that show up that know each other. They're not really good. They're not really that good, but they kind of show up for the social aspect of it. And me showing up to those games, I kind of felt like a party pooper. And that's another reason why I kind of start, decided to cut back on some of my um, my live poker play because I have trouble balancing those two things, like trying to have conversations and actually like do math <laughs> and pay attention. And it kind of feels like in these sort of games, if they notice that you're not, engaging in the conversations because you're trying to do math and you're trying to win that almost is frowned upon like wait this guy's thinking he's over here trying to win like we're just having a good time and when i realized it was that sort of thing i was like okay this is not this is not for me i shouldn't be here like these guys are drinking they want to do a round of shots or whatever the hell and <laughs> i'm kind of like just being a party pooper and also taking money <laughs> um, from the situation, I was like, you know what, I shouldn't be here. And I stopped playing in those sort of games because of that. And I think that was good for everybody involved. Yeah, and I think that's that's a really mature uh, decision, Carlos. And I, and I think you're you're touching on something like really important these days in, in just like the climate of poker, which is... Um, not only like these public home games, I, I totally that totally resonates with me. But but the the private games, the, the private game scene that has sprouted up, where um, you know, but like certainly the, the the biggest skill in those games is not playing well or doing math. The biggest skill is getting an invite. Like you need yeah. to just 
impress the right people, you need to schmooze the gatekeeper because once you get in that game, I mean, you're just printing money. So, it, so the, it, then it it comes back to, well, what soft skills are necessary? Am I able to have a conversation? Am I able to impress somebody or say the right things or, or play in a certain way? And for me, that's like a very, um, you know, it's just a tricky situation to, to, to navigate because I, I think at some point, even if you might not be doing it consciously, you... Um, yeah, you just might be trying to like manip- manipulate people on the social level as part of the metagame to get an invite. So it's just kind of this next level effort to game somebody. And that does seem out of sync with just having a conversation, like talking to somebody because you want to you wanna learn something about them. You wonder, you know, you, you wonder about where they just went on vacation or, or what they do for work, you know. So trying to kind of reconcile those two things has always been, uh, I just find it like an interesting question. For me, um, I, I'm not really interested in playing in private games. So it's, it's, it's not really a, 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 like immediate, immediately irrelevant for my life. But as somebody who is interested in the culture of poker, it's super interesting because um, I mean, it's not even like the underground private games. Some, I mean, people in Vegas talk about this a lot. I, I don't know if it's like the Aria or the the Win or some of these some of these card rooms. I mean, they just have like private games that are in the casino now that you just can't you can't yeah. get into unless you get an invite. And so I just think it's a huge question for anybody who's thinking about playing poker seriously or professionally. It's like you need to think about what kind of skill set you have. And how you can leverage that skill set to get into the games you want to. So that's why I think, like Carlos, for you, I mean, you, you're playing the games you should be playing in because that's what you enjoy the most. Exactly. Like that's what that's why online poker is like perfect for me because I can be my own weird self here in my room and without you know um, interfering with other people's little party and not being annoyed by their party. And I think that's just perfect. That's that that's like uh it's like the perfect um setup. To the point where I kind of view online poker as real poker. <laughs> where a lot of people kind of view live poker as real poker and online is kinda of like this like, you know, different version of it. But if you are interested in the game, I feel like online is better because I can like like that's what I'm interested in. I'm interested in the game. The math, the structure of the game, and like just the nuts and bolts. And I'm not really interested in the social side when I'm at the table. But for a lot of people, whether just enjoying the social aspect in a public setting, or like you said, the little smoozing that schmoozing sm- <laughs> that goes along. See, the, the words I would never use uh, if I was in these environments. Uh, the, the schmoozing <laughs> that goes along in order to get into these games with these whales in order to take advantage of them, I agree with you. Like, that doesn't sit that well for me. Because oftentimes, a lot of that results in you doing things that you otherwise wouldn't do. Like, I know people who have played with whales that want somebody to drink with them. And they're not a big drinker, but they drink with this guy because they want him to stay around. And then, like, just nothing good comes from that, in my opinion. Like, money is not worth some things, in my opinion. Yeah, I think you can probably replace drink with, like, cocaine in some scenarios. (laughs) (laughs) 
Yeah, frog poison, anything. Like, you know, there's so much stuff out there that, uh, you know, people will get into uh, for the sake of, you know, being in certain poker circles. And I'm just completely fine in my room by myself talking to Andrew over the Internet. <laughs> this man, Andrew, do you have a... Uh, go ahead, then. Uh, yeah, I just would like to ask if, uh, as someone who has inhabited both worlds... If you think online poker or live poker is real poker, which one? <laughs> well, I, I reject the, Great the premise of the question. <laughs> but <laughs> um, what I was starting to say, I, I think, it is actually partly an answer to this, which is I think this may have actually been the last um, article that I wrote for 2 Plus 2 magazine, to, to bring that thread full circle, uh, was about <laughs> one of the implications of the the pandemic and like people not playing live poker was a lot of people who had never played online or had not played online like since black friday so you know 10 10 plus years uh, playing online for the first time and um the other thing that why i haven't been playing as, as much live poker is i haven't really had the like economic pressure to to do it um, i've had so much coaching demand kind of since the start of the pandemic and a lot of it was initially people who were just like had no idea what they were doing in, in online poker where they were so accustomed to i mean a just encountering weaker opposition in, in general in live poker but also the i mean there's a lot that you pick up on even if you're not consciously thinking about tells and that kind of thing just like you're used to uh having a, a vibe on how someone plays or even having a lot of experience with a particular person you have more insight into their like psychology and their emotional state and there's just a lot of information that is available to you on live poker that's not available to you online and I think you know, for, for some people, especially people who are playing poker mostly for the social aspect, the online stuff was not that satisfying. I think a lot of them didn't stick with it. But I think it was a bit like um, you know, like like Luke Skywalker training with the uh, with a blindfold, you know, where he's got to learn to like feel the force, uh, where you can. It forces you to learn the mathematical side of the game by like taking away the. Um, I don't know if it's fair to call them training wheels, but just. You know, there there are different sources of information in poker, and people who are used to relying on one source of information, if you suddenly take that away, they're either going to, you know, drown, um, or they're going to <laughs> learn to use this other source of information. And so, if you do take that opportunity to develop a more mathematically informed game and like better understand some of the the fundamental strategy in poker that's independent of making exploitative assumptions about your opponents, then when you return to live poker and you are able to take your blindfold off, and now you have all the information that you're used to getting from tells and, and people's behavior and, and the things they say and then on top of that you also understand the underlying strategy i think that's you know that that's the, the ultimate power um so i, I guess that's my long-winded answer to your question ben is I, I think it's both like i think that you uh i mean i guess the, the the very best players are informed in in both of those areas but the very the most successful players i think are just getting invited to the right games and are not necessarily what we might consider the, the best players but they are probably the ones making the most money yeah i i think this online live debate it's it's been around for a long time it's going to continue to be around i just think we're at such an interesting moment um with sort of that divide you know because uh you know we, we've just seen examples of um 
you know, on the one hand, just the incredible importance of like the online streaming culture. We the importance of that on like the live games. I don't know if y'all saw that like Hustler Casino live stream with I, Mr. Beast. I didn't and, see it, but I certainly saw the fallout from it. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, on the one hand, it was incredibly successful um, in the sense that you know you're bringing hundreds of millions of view potential viewers uh, to at least this live poker stream. I mean, obviously they're not all watching, but if you think if you break down like I, I didn't know who these folks were. Um, aside from like Mr. Beast, and then there's all these this ninja, this esports streamer. We're talking like 80 million followers, 100 million. It's followers. funny that the person that we recognized at the table, or that the people we recognized at the table, were by far the least famous. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, the poker players are by far the least right. famous. Yeah, and so yeah. On the one hand, we have all these these uh, yeah these these esports streamers bringing potential players to the community. Um, and then you have the uh, the uh, yeah. The, I don't know if you're you're talking about the Helmuth's glorious antics. Is that what you're talking about with the fallout? Yeah, I mean that Nias was was the main like controversy. I just mean in general, like I saw a lot of uh, discussion of that game after the fact, even though I didn't watch it. I, I feel like I heard a decent amount about what happened there. Obviously, with a lot of emphasis on the Helmuth thing. For sure, yeah. So I think I think the homie thing aside, the, the the event was really successful just because everybody, all these streamers were sitting at one table. You know, multiple streams got um, you know over a million views, and so there's this question of like, like how do you grow the game? It's like it's like sort of the industry question, and and it seems like more and more these live streams are, are becoming the answer, um, and that's obviously it's coming from an online context. It's coming out of the the Zoom context, Skype context. Um, and then on the other hand, you have all this shit <laughs> with the RTAing and the frog poison and, and the ghosting and the multi-accounting and, and it just raises all these questions of like, what is the tenable, um, platform or context in which to play poker? It, it, is the online scene even going to survive this influx of AI strategies and and is there other ways to police the games and 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 are we somehow going to be left with um with live poker if if not so I just think we're we're just at a really I'm, I'm rambling a bit but I just think we're at a really interesting moment I think with everything that's happening. Yeah, I I have some of those same concerns because I I watched some of the um, coverage for lack of a better term or the conversation that was happening online during this whole um, thing. And that came up often was the idea that, you know, online poker could eventually go away because of all the RTA and all this sort of thing. And, um, yeah, that's definitely a big concern for me, because if we're left with live poker, it's going to be a weird it's going to be a weird transition for me. Um, I've kind of dealt with this before in that I started online and I probably play online for maybe a decade for almost a decade before I played a single hand of live poker. And um, live poker, <laughs> really, I only got into live poker because of because Black Friday took online away. <laughs> That's the only reason I got into live poker. And then so for that year or two that um, um, I didn't realize there would be like these rogue pop-up sites, um, 
I started trying to transition to live poker, and it was new. It was exciting. It was it was different. So so it wasn't it wasn't that bad for me at the time. Um, but then when online started to come back, I started to um, kind of gravitate back towards that. But to think that that sort of thing could happen again um, is a little bit scary. I'm gonna have to learn how to like count stacks and shit. <laughs> <laughs> that's the worst man when I'm trying to look across because my eyesight is already a little bit bad I'm trying to look across the table and like estimate how many chips somebody has I hate that kind of shit online you don't have to worry about any of that yeah you would you would not want to be a lab reporter that's like that's like <laughs> skill that you must have <laughs> is to be able to accurately count stacks yeah, that's you're constantly going around, scurrying around the the room, and you constantly update chip stacks. That's like number one, and then number two is you got to find uh, some cool hand histories. But yeah, yeah, you're you're, <laughs> it's, you're doing well, not not doing the lab reporting. Another one that really kills me is um, being on the bubble and not knowing all the stacks um, listed from biggest to small. <laughs> like on online, I can just pull up the lobby and I can see how many people I covered the other tables and all that sort of thing. Uh, not knowing that information live is another one that just um, really messes with my game. So I'm definitely playing with one hand tied behind my back when I'm live. Ben, uh, if, if you need to run, you're welcome to. But if, if not, I have something totally unrelated to poker that I would, I'm curious to ask you. No, uh, yeah, absolutely. Ask away. Ask away. No, I've, I've been refraining for for the the hour that I consider sort of the the proper interview because this is you know a, a poker <laughs> podcast. I don't want to bore people too much, but the, the truth is, this is kind of the only thing that's been on my mind the last few days. Uh, have you seen the television program Atlanta? No, not only have I not seen it, I haven't even heard of it. So really, what's 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 up with the show? Yeah, um, Carlos might be able to provide a better introduction than than I. I'd be curious to hear how, how Carlos introduces it. He he uh, turned. Well, I mean, I, I had heard of it, but I had not seen it. And, and Carlos convinced me to start watching it, and I think it's uh, fantastic. I'm I'm happy to to summarize it if you, if you don't want to, Carlos. But I wanted to give you the chance. Okay, I'll just um, steal the creator's um, um, description of it. So first, I'll just start being to ask you, are you familiar with Donald Glover? Yes, wasn't he? I am, definitely. Was it, he was in Die Hard alongside Bruce Willis, is that right? <laughs> that's, Dan, that's Danny Glover. Oh, no. Uh, very very, very <laughs> different people. Um, he was an actor on a show called Community. I think. Okay. Um, that, I don't know much about. Much, much younger. Is that right? Much younger. Yes. Okay. Okay. Um, I am familiar with him as well. <laughs> okay. So, <laughs> I think that's a common. Um, I think that's a common bit of confusion people have. Very similar names. Uh, but Donald Donald Glover created this show. And are you familiar with a show called Twin Peaks? Yes, and I've seen some of that. Okay. Yeah. So that that'll be a good. Um, uh, comparison. He he describes his show as Twin Peaks with rappers, based in the city of Atlanta. So that that's that's the that best description wild. of the show. Isn't Dave, Twin Peaks is David Lynch creation? Is that right? Yes. Yeah, 
And David Lynch is wild. Like, Mulholland Drive and some of his films are some among the most wild films I've ever seen. Um, so now you're, you definitely have my, my interest. Is it, like, what sort of show is it? Is it, is it like a, a, a drama or is it um, a comedy? Or? <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, yeah. It's unclassifiable. <laughs> yeah, sort of everything. I think it's primarily built as a comedy. At least it was in the first season or two. It's kind of gotten different in the third season. But um, for the most part, it is a comedy with a lot of these um, drama, surrealism, and a bit of um, horror elements mixed in. Okay, nice. So so uh, is it um, like one of the streaming sites? Hulu. Yeah, um, and and it's also like the current season is also on regular TV or I guess cable. Um, I don't even know, man. It's been so long since I had a house. Uh, yeah, it's on uh, is FX. FX regular TV. It, yeah, is that regular it, TV? It's, or cable? it's cable. Um, but uh, so okay. this was actually been my my introduction to it. Um, Carlos first encouraged me. There's certain episodes that are are just like standalones. The the regular cast does not appear in them at all. Um, they it's not even clear if they like take place in the same universe as, as the regular show. Uh, <laughs> yeah. They're very good, like short films, essentially just this sort of half hour, um, short films. Uh, so I, I think you can get started with those or I did. And those are, uh, at least I, I was able to log in with like a valid, um, cable account. Like if you have cable television, you can log into the um, FX website and you can watch the, the current season. Um, and, and I think it's episodes one, four, and seven are like standalone ones. Um, so I, I was sort of convinced by the strength of those. Some of them I found like there they were comedic situations. I don't know that I laughed out loud ever during during any of them. Um, at least one of them was was downright heavy like not 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 really comedic at all i would say um and then i went i i, I thought those were so good i went back and started watching it from the beginning got like a two-week free trial of um of hulu and so now i'm trying to like cram them all into my my two-week free trial but the um now there were many moments there have been many moments in the regular season at least the, you know, i'm still in the first season but like the regular season episodes where i have in fact left out loud and i think it is very like it is. There are very straightforwardly comedic moments. Um, it, it, it's not. There are moments that are very surreal. Um, it doesn't get super weird until they, they kind of start exper experimenting with like the format and, and the structure and and whatnot later in, in the season. Um, but yeah, there's like there's an episode with. Uh, there, where there's a, a character, a rapper named Justin Bieber, not a rapper, I guess, but a, a singer named Justin Bieber, um, who is played by a black man and I guess supposed to be black in the in this in the universe but there's no like explanation for this there's just like Justin Bieber and he's like black and not Justin Bieber and it's just like sort of <laughs> basically seems to be the Justin Bieber in our universe but but black and that's never like explained or anything wow well I'm convinced I mean I think you've both sold me on the show I I my little uh streaming the rules that I that I set up for myself because I love I mean I love I, I feel like we've been in a renaissance for like streaming shows for a while now and we're we almost have too much to choose from so I um, allow myself like one streaming platform per month like I will not like I'll only have like 
Netflix, you know, yeah. and then I'll watch that for a while, and then I'll switch. So like like ten bucks a month seems reasonable. So right now, since so the next time I go, I have Hulu. Like this will give me an excuse if I want to do Hulu for for a month. Um, right now I, I'm watching some HBO shows. Um, the uh, there's a show called Winning Time. I don't know if y'all have, have have heard of that, but I would definitely recommend that. Um, it's about the like early uh, 1980s Lakers team. So it's, so it's like a young Magic Johnson and um, Jerry Buss is, is this really um, freewheeling, womanizing owner um, played by John C. Riley, and, and it's one of those shows where you really don't need to be a sports fan or a basketball team to appreciate it. It's, it's just really uh, well-written and funny, and it doesn't take itself seriously at all. Very irreverent. Um, so I'm enjoying that. And then I also started the new David Simon show called We Own This City. Have you all heard of that one or not? I did not realize that was David Simon. I have heard of it. And I mean, being, being so, in the Baltimore area, I'm, I'm familiar with the story. Yeah, so I mean, well. it's just a must. I mean, it's a must watch for fans of The Wire. Um, it's kind of like the spiritual successor to The Wire, I would say. And like one of the um, added bonuses of the show, which is really about like corruption in the Baltimore Police Department. Uh, one of the added bonuses is that there's tons of character, of actors from The Wire who are in the show. And they often play against type. So, like, Marlo <laughs> is a homicide detective. <laughs> and, um, I mean, there's just uh, endless, endless examples. There's, like, over a dozen actors from The Wire on that show. And then, um, it's current. Like, it's not all out yet. I think only the first three episodes have been released. So, um, so it, you know, it's tough because, like, I, as a fan, I'm a huge fan of David Simon. I love The Wire, um, but one of the downsides of watching any of his stuff is like you always compare it to The Wire, so it'll never be as good. Um, so that was my experience with like Treme, which is you know it's a show about New Orleans. It's it's like decent, but I, I didn't think it's anywhere near The Wire. And and this this is a show that's um, you know it's it's about Baltimore again. And so I'm enjoying it so far. Yeah, it's it's I think it's six parts. It's like a mini series. So those are the two shows that that are kind of on my radar right now. You've certainly sold me on that. That one was like, I, mean, I guess it was also on my radar, but like a lot of things are on my radar, so I have no idea when it would have turned into a thing that I was going to watch um, in, until you told me. I, I, I don't know how I missed that it was uh, also with David Simon. I mean, I heard people comparing it to The Wire, but I kind of thought that was just because it was in Baltimore and about police corruption. Um, I, I did not realize that it was David Simon, and, and that does it does increase my interest. Um, I mean, I feel the same way about Treme. I didn't think it was, uh, I, I was sort of, I think unfairly expecting just like the wire, but in new Orleans, <laughs> and which it is not. Um, I, I think I'm not real compelled to like rewatch it, but I think there's some really good performances in, in, in Treme. I, I was not dissatisfied with Treme. Um, I did, just, I had no interest whatsoever. I, I tried to watch the one, I don't even remember what it was called. That was about sort of like the, the porn industry in the 1970s. Um, I watched like two episodes of that and it was just, I just found it interminably boring. Like I really didn't care at all. I, I found it like not creatively interesting or I, I was sort of lost interest in him. Uh, I, I haven't like given up on him, but that, that was a real disappointment for me. Okay. For me, that one was solid. I enjoyed that. I, I thought there that, um, I think it was like three seasons. Yeah. I, I really, I didn't know anything about that. The history of, of that part of New York city. And, um, I can't remember her. 
Oh, Maggie Gyllenhaal. I thought she gives a really, really strong performance. So that one, that one worked for me. I think I was maybe a little more disappointed in Treme than than you were. It sounds like, but I still enjoyed it. I think I'm also a little, you know, a little biased, a little partial to New Orleans. Yeah. I think it's very hard to 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 the, the other question of like how do you represent New Orleans in art? It's obviously a question that that many many people have have struggled with, and it's a, it's a tough a tough one. So I think he. He flounders a bit in certain areas there, um, but yeah, overall, I obviously a huge David Simon fan to the point where pretty much anything he he puts out, I'm gonna I'm gonna watch, I'm gonna watch. So I think We Own the City is like it's also like not as much of a commitment because I think it's only six episodes. Mm-hmm. I assume then you've seen like the corner. Oh yeah, yeah, that's kind of the pre the precursor to the the wire. Um, did you have thoughts? Did you enjoy that? I don't know if enjoy is quite the word, but I thought it was good. Yeah, yeah. I mean, all, yeah, enjoy might not be the word for any of the stuff, because, I mean, you know, <laughs> some of it's very bleak, and I think the, the his new one is, if possible, even bleaker than The Wire. But, yeah, well, I, I think I hear The you. Wire, Matt, I mean, it really walks a tightrope of a uh, high wire, if you will. Of um, it, it is, like, I, I think, that, like, the kind of message of it is is bleak but there's a lot of i mean i think there's a lot of very funny moments in in the wire and a lot of sort of people experiencing joy despite being doomed essentially uh, and i think that's like a, a very difficult note to hit that, that they hit well in the wire and um i think the corner i didn't even feel like really tried to do that i think that the corner was was kind of just leaning into the the bleak which is not the end of the world it's just that's what it was um but i think mean, there's also good examples of, of people that you know from the wire playing against type and i guess the corner came first but um like uh lester freeman as a uh, drug addict <laughs> um and then um how about uh, homicide no i have not seen homicide it it kind of it's it starts off very good like i think the first at least the first season or two of, of homicide is very well worth watching um it turns into because that's based on on his book homicide um it turns into a much more routine network. So I don't think he had a lot of creative control over it. He may have even been like a creator and then like not even terribly involved in in the later seasons. So it it turns into like more of a standard, like, you know, police procedural uh, sort of show. I mean, still probably better than average for that kind of show, but it starts to feel a lot more like a kind of standard network fare in in the later seasons. But I think the first couple of seasons are fantastic and you'll even recognize some, some scenes uh, that kind of get reused in, in the wire. Okay. Yeah. I think I would, I think I would enjoy that. Yeah. Cause that I never, never dipped into it. Um, and I think in a way, one reason why I enjoyed the wire so much, cause it, it just like so thoroughly dismantles that conventional, like detective show model. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, like I said, I mean, I, I, I think I, I'm, I'm kind of, there's a few others. I think he's done one or two other things that I haven't seen, like Generation Kill. I haven't seen, which is maybe about the Afghanistan War, the Iraq, Iraq War. I can't yeah, remember. Yeah, that was an, okay. very forgettable. I mean, I think I liked it okay at the time, but I remember very little about it. Okay. Yeah, I feel like I will eventually be a David Simon completist, but I'm not. I'm not there yet. <laughs> Never heard that term before. I like it. Yeah, I mean, you you gotta, you gotta you gotta some of these uh, you know, there's a couple writers. It's like you, you just gotta every anything they put out, or, or you know, artists as well. Um, you know, I'll just like snap by like 
I don't know, like the Black Keys, I, I really like. So I'll just if it doesn't matter, like what I don't need to listen to it to see if I'll if I, if I'm gonna buy it, I'll just buy it. Uh, anything else you guys want to talk about? Can I just quickly ask um, one? Yeah, I guess one writing-related question, yeah. or I guess more reading-related. Are you enjoying the, um, the George Saunders story club? Uh, I was afraid you were going to ask me about that. I haven't actually started doing on any <laughs> of them yet. Um, I, uh, I I did sign up for it, and when I signed up, he was on like part three of, uh, of looking through a particular story, and I was like, oh, I should go back and, and read the first parts. And then I've used that as an excuse to not read anything that he sent me <laughs> in the weeks since I signed up for it. So I, I must confess that I have not. Okay, so for my, so for Carlos and for any listeners who, <laughs> in, the, in the small chance you might be interested in this, let me do give a 30-second spiel because I, I, I really love Saunders. I, I you know, like pitch this to my students. It might be a little nerdy for folks, but um, yeah, George Saunders is a very renowned short story writer. Um, he is, he recently wrote a book that kind of close reads his favorite um, Russian short stories like Tolstoy, Chekhov, Turgenev. And the uh, response to that book was so positive that he ended up doing um, he created a substack which is a it's a he does a bi-weekly newsletter where he basically just like shares a story that he likes and writes about it and so for example he started with a Hemingway short story called Cat in the Rain and he just sort of writes his way through the story talks about what he likes what he thinks is working well and one of the things that makes the substack so great is there's like literally thousands of readers who are really attentive and they like chime in with comments and so uh for anybody who likes short stories or reading or cool communities i just wanted to throw that out there and then now i'll now i'll stop i i, I would put saunders in that bucket of people that like i'll read any i actually have not gone back and read some of his oldest stuff but like certainly anything new that that saunders puts out is like a snap pickup for me and, and i probably will eventually go back and, and read some of his oldest stuff but um I had, I mean, I've always kind of understood, I guess partly from you, uh, you know, a lot of people have this opinion of, you know, like Chekhov being a kind of master of, of the short fiction. And like, I do enjoy short fiction and I've always struggled to get into any of the writers that, that you mentioned, just like sort of the, the partly that they were knowing that they were writing in, in Russian originally, I think creates a little bit of like a, a gap. And then there's a cultural gap in like the time when they were writing or whatever the excuses are. Like I've, I've always struggled to, to get into them and have not successfully read really any like Russian fiction. And, um, that book made it feel very accessible to me. Like I, Sonder, it, it's kind of like having a, a like kindly friend who will, who will like, make stuff accessible for you where I felt like I was getting something out of reading it. Like, cause he, he gives you the whole story. So you can like read the story yourself. And I was like, I didn't get anything out of that or very little out of that. And then you kind of get his commentary on it. And then you're like, Oh, I see why that's good. It's, it's very neat. Totally agree for sure. Yeah. Um, George Saunders, he's in addition to being a fantastic creator, he's just a kind curious intelligent human being and that it really shows through yeah. in the book about the russian writers and in, in the um 
the Substack because he's you know he's always engaging with people in the community as well. Yeah, so I'm 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 on board with I'm on the Saunders train too. I will also say for for people who are not familiar with with Saunders and are kind of podcast inclined, which I guess if you're still listening to us after an hour and a half of this, <laughs> you must be pretty <laughs> podcast inclined. Um, he did an interview with uh, Ezra Klein on the Ezra Klein. I'm sure he's done a lot of, of interviews, but um, the I, I think he comes across very well in that interview. So if you don't know who Saunders is, or if you're not sold on him, I think you'll you'll understand what Ben means when you say he's sort of a very kind, humane person. Uh, I think that really comes through. In, in the Ezra Klein interview. Carlos, anything uh, Russian literature related you want to add? No, I will add though that I am a 3D Nazi completist who uh, happens to be a um, uh, female rapper from down in New Orleans. So um, she's working on a new CD that I'm, I'm listening to right now. So yeah. The whole time y'all were talking about this shit I don't um, I know about, I was thinking about rap. So Could you say her name again, of, Carlos? Because I didn't catch that. 3D, not T. And being okay. from New Orleans, you may know this. Um, the 3 stands for Third Ward, and D stands for Delachey Street, which is um, where she grew up. Are you familiar with Delachey? I'm, I'm familiar with Della Chase. I'm not familiar with her. It looks like she... So she, you like her mainly for hip-hop, but it looks like she does um, music videos too? Yeah, they're rap music videos that she... Um, basically, she makes her own videos for her songs. But um, she was someone that... Um, I used to do radio in Atlanta, and when she was getting started... I really liked her music and I would play it on my show and I've basically just been a big fan and supporter of hers for several years and she's gotten a lot better and um, um, not as well known as she should be but um, I'm continuing to um, be a uh, big fan of hers and um, I just want to use this new word you taught me uh, I'm a 3D Nazi completist I like it. Yeah, now you give me you give me something to explore because even though I'm like fairly ignorant of um, Nola musicians and the the hip hop scene and and the jazz scene, I, I love I love listening to live music. I, French Quarter Fest was 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 just here. Jazz Fest was just here. So I'm she, I'm she like performed all, all that, that. She performed at Jura at um, Jazz Fest. Um, in fact, um, she. Um, she recently opened up a studio um, in New Orleans um, for recording her music and also a lot of the other local artists. She does a really good job of um, giving a platform to artists in New Orleans who don't get, you know, a big push on a major label. I mean, uh, on a major platform. But um, yeah, she performs at Jazz Fest pretty much every year, I think. Um, I'll send you some links. Uh, she's got a lot of... Um, um, stuff that I think you would like, and I, I remember. Great, yeah, thanks so much. I remember Carlos, you, you plugging three. I mean, I'm sure she's come up in, in several of our interviews, but the very first time that you were on this show, way back on uh, episode 49, I think it was. Uh, I mean, that was like we we asked for some recommendations, and that was the the first name off your lips. Yep, episode 39, 39. which was in 2000, 2013, so almost a decade ago. Um, 
I've been um, a big fan. And um, her new CD, which is not out yet, you know, being a big fan, part of what I'm doing is like listening to the songs and helping her decide which one she's going to put on the final version of the album that's going to be released um, publicly. Uh, Yeah, so part of that is going to be me coming to New Orleans for a listening party at her studio. Um, So I'm looking forward to that whenever whenever it happens. But yeah, she's been um, she's been a a friend for a long time now. And um, yeah, a big a big inspiration of mine for sure. Yeah, that's really cool to have that kind of uh, like you know, behind the scenes sort of uh, relationship. I, I didn't know about that. That's really neat. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I always say like I kind of view it as if I if I had the opportunity to meet Tupac, like that never happened for me. But have have an opportunity to meet her, her kind of feels the same way. Wow. I thought I was special for reading an early version of Tommy Angelo's book. <laughs> <laughs> that matters too. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, Tommy Angelo is kind of like the Tupac of poker. I can see that. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's been really good talking to you guys. Yeah, you too. You too. Yeah, I'm. I'm, I'm sorry. Probably I won't talk to you again. Having me is great. It's great to catch up with y'all. I feel like. Uh, I mean, I enjoyed the whole conversation, and I, w- I always enjoy the recommendations. So, um, so I'm gonna I'm, I'll look forward to dipping into some of these. Yeah, I, I was gonna say I'm, I'm sorry that uh, it, it, at least for me it, it won't be happening live in in Las Vegas this year. But this is certainly the the next best thing. So, thanks to you both. Yes. Yep. Thank for you sure. Too. All right. Take care. All right. Take care, y'all. All right. You too. Bye. Devotion of a comma light of the fair passage of a bill And who will sign us into law? I know you won't, you won't